Good afternoon to the UK Column viewers and listeners. Uh, I've come back in the studio for an interview this afternoon with a gentleman, Duncan White. Um, Duncan has sent me a lot of very interesting information in some emails, plus an attached document. And he's got a fascinating background, which I'm going to get him to tell us a little more about that. Um, but what we're going to do today is at least start off with having a bit of a discussion about the NHS and some of the problems in the NHS. So without any more to do, Duncan, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. You were, you were kind enough to uh, email in. So I'm just going to ask, how did you discover the uh, UK column in the first place? Ah, well, um, some years ago, I, I signed up because I came across it um, from colleagues who, who advised me about it. And then more recently, um, I've, I've joined a, a conversation group who are very, uh, very keen on, on UK Column and its, its news service and put me in touch with one of your correspondents, Debbie. Um, and uh, we went from there. Yeah, excellent. Okay, thank you very much for that. It's always interesting to hear where people find us. And there, there are often interesting stories around that little saga. But I admit that at lunchtime, I just walked up the road from the UK Column studio where there's a really excellent little food wagon. And um, as I was waiting for my toasted sandwich, uh, one of the guys in the queue said, you're Brian. And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'd just like to say that I watch the UK Column News with my work colleagues and all my family watch as well. So he was in one of the um, uh, one of the companies, the industrial units, just a few hundred yards up the road from the UK Column. And as I said to him, it's always quite a boost when people do this because you think, yes, we are actually getting out and, and achieving an audience. So Thank you for doing the, yep. the same there, Duncan. Now, let's let's have a look. You sent me some interesting stuff about your background. You said you were a senior technical advisor to the UK home care sector for nearly five years. And you've worked on several working groups with the Care Quality Commission, uh, the National Institute of Healthcare Excellence and Skills for Care. Um, you've worked on some... Um, task force projects at the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, you've also got an involvement um, with a motoring organisation, which uh, I've lost that one at the moment. We'll come back on to that. And I believe you're also involved in a charity. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Set the scene for our viewers and listeners today. OK, uh, well, I started off as a registered nurse in both mental health and acute services. And uh, inevitably, the career path takes you into management. Um, and I worked, uh, worked my way up to executive level uh, in both acute and psychiatry um, before joining um, uh, a private enterprise, rescuing bankrupt nursing homes and turning around failing nursing homes before I embarked on a, a career with a, a City of London uh, consultancy working. Um, uh, in uh, healthcare systems across the 10 countries, all four jurisdictions of the United Kingdom, plus uh, six overseas projects, and spent a couple of years in the Gulf 
And uh, on returning from the Gulf, I wasn't quite ready for retirement. So worked as an advisor in home care services to a, a trade association. And that took me into working groups with the Department of Health, Business, Enterprise, Innovation and Skills, working on things like implementing the Care Act and the Modern Slavery Act. And I worked also with the Care Quality Commission, Skills for Care um, and various other project groups that gave me a very great understanding, a very broad understanding of how uh, the bureaucracy behind the healthcare system works. And then since retirement, I've been working uh, with a couple of charities. Okay, thank you for that. And I I believe that you've also done some time with the army. Is that right? Yes, I was uh, commissioned into the Royal Army Medical Corps as a nursing officer and spent uh, 12 years um, in in frontline roles there. Um, I never worked in army hospitals. I was always working with the infantry, tank regiments and uh, frontline uh, formations. So uh, had a very uh, lively involvement in places like Germany, Holland, uh, Cyprus. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for that. Uh, well, that's quite a spread of uh, experience in a, in a range of different sectors. And uh, I can see that that puts you in a very good place for commenting on some of the things that you've seen happening in those particular areas. You, you sent me a very interesting text um, about the NHS, um, which starts off with the bulleted headline, Demand Failures. And I, I, read, yes. uh, I read through this with great interest, and I, I'd like really to talk through uh, that, uh, uh, these subjects with you for, for the interview today. But before I do, I'd just like to tell a little anecdotal story, which you'll understand as I get into it. But uh, many years ago, um, what, what would it be now? Well, I'm going to say probably about 15 years ago, I was up in London with a lady who'd had a professional career in the NHS. Um, she'd worked her way up uh, from nursing on the wards to ward sister, and then um, in later years, she'd moved across into NHS management. And uh, a little while before I, I went up to London to see her, she said to me that she'd uh, uh, taken on a new job at one of the London teaching hospitals. So it was a sunny Saturday morning, if I remember correctly, and we were in the back garden of her house up in, in London having breakfast. And I said to her, how is the new job going? And there was quite a long pause. And then she said, well, it's sort of frying pan and fire. And I said, well, that's a little bit, sounds a little bit unfortunate. You know, what, what's happening? And she said to me, well, the problem is I live in a world of meetings. We have planning meetings. We have strategy meetings. We have preparation meetings we have this meeting and that meeting and she said they're very time consuming and not a lot seems to come out of them but she said sometimes it's worse than not much happening things do come out of them but they're the wrong things and I said what do you mean by that and she said well um, there's quite a lot of experienced people sit around the table and they've they've been at uh, 
the medical profession for some years and a, an idea will be put forward and the experienced people automatically know this is not a good idea and so diplomatically they tell the more senior people the reasons why the proposed idea is not a good idea uh, but uh, she said what always happens is we're told to get on with it so the idea is implemented and then sure enough in a matter of days or maybe weeks the problems start and then we've got the job of sorting out the problems and convincing the managers that their idea was the cause of all the problems in the first place. She said it's madness and I said to her what if it's not madness what if it's good management and there was a long pause and the lady looked at me as if I was slightly mad which is probably understandable and I said just answer the question I said you you are making the assumption that the managers of that hospital want to run an efficient and effective hospital but what if they're not and she went very quiet for several minutes and then she said oh my goodness that explains that and it explains that and what I'd done is just challenged her and pushed her slightly away from the belief that the ideas were being put forward in order to help the hospital. And I just got her thinking on the idea that maybe the proposals were uh, deliberate ideas in order to create problems in the hospital. And I can tell you that sometime later, things got so bad in that particular hospital uh, that the lady had to leave and uh, she left on the basis that she said I just couldn't accept some of the working practices that were being enforced on people but worst of all was when I tried to use my professional knowledge and experience to put things right I was eventually uh, invited to take some time off uh, to look after my mental health and so that's a little anecdotal story and I wonder what your reaction is to that story before we get discussing your points. Yes, um, fascinating insight you have there into the machinations of the NHS. And I think there's two elements to this. I think firstly, there are uh, targets which have been set, which bear scant resemblance to uh, clinical need um, or healthcare promotion. Um, so you have uh, perverse incentives uh, to, to undertake courses of action that intuitively for a clinician, you know, are way off target. And from the learned management perspective, don't actually address the problems that they as managers are trying to, uh, uh, to remedy. Um, so you get this conflict, this constant conflict uh, going on at uh, uh, pretty much every level of decision making within the NHS. The second factor, though, is perhaps a little more um, risque in as far as several years ago, um, we were asked at very, very senior level to undertake a course of action. Um, and, and I paraphrase uh, to an extent when I say that um, the polit politicians and the bureaucrats wanted this by Tuesday. And the answer that I gave was that if, if you work for Mercedes-Benz or 
Bentley or someone, and you decide you want to do a new car, you first of all, you identify the niche market, you do product viability studies, you do marketing tests, you do engineering viability studies, and you go through the design um, paradigm of, of working out the best design, the cheapest options, the most cost effective options and so on and so forth. And then you do uh, customer relations exercises. And that takes quite a long time. And if you're working for Mercedes or Bentley or whoever, that takes a long time and it's part and parcel of developing a new car. In the NHS, a bureaucrat decides something is a good idea and wants it by Tuesday. Forget anything about whether this is matched to needs, whether it addresses a particular health problem, or whether it is the latest management wheeze. And a, and a very good example of that is the four-hour accident emergency waits, which have absolutely nothing to do with clinical priority, medical needs, or whether that actually addresses patient needs. I mean, it, it's just nonsensical. So I, I absolutely buy into your colleagues' uh, frustrations with the system, and readily accept that after a certain amount of time, she had to move on for her health and well-being. And I very much reflect that because in my own experience, I got to a point where I could see uh, the future rolling out as a chief executive of a trust or whatever. And when you look at these people, they've got gravestones in their eyes because the pressure on them from the political system and the politicized system is such that the scope of flexibility, the scope of creativity and entrepreneurialism to identify and address those problems is taken out of your hands completely. You're in the hands of a bureaucratic machine that dictates. And uh, very difficult, very difficult. I got out as well. Okay. Now, it's, in, it, it, it's interesting there, Duncan, because very quickly you, you, you've mentioned the politicisation of organizations and i spotted that in the second sentence the the first uh, topic that you had on this sheet uh, was demand failure um, yes perversely designed into the nhs by fault and then you say the demand failure leads uh, to the politicization of organizations i think Absolutely. i know what you're talking about there how, how do you come to that conclusion that when when the when the demand failure is uh, in flow, the politicisation follows. Yes, um, it, it's it's a very interesting anthropological position to find yourself in when you're working as a consultant in hospitals who have um, really quite desperate problems that need unravelling, that need an, a, a, some formula to to get them out of this. Uh, uncontrollable mess. What happens is that organisations that, that, that are large and dispersed uh, and are very diverse in their, their service offering and in their, in their presence in the community, um, they become very susceptible to turf wars. And what happens is that if you phone the organisation up and the first person you come into contact with has no idea what to do or no idea how to respond to this request. You know you're in a bureaucracy. And what happens is within the NHS is that no one person has the answer to anything. 
particularly. So you, you find yourself in a situation where you are confronted by this monolithic organization and every turn you take, you are deferred onto someone else or another department or um, another referral pathway. And, and what then happens is that 80% of the time of uh, the, uh, the staff uh, in, in the organization get spent trying to unravel this problem. And, and when, when you go in as a consultant, you try to design what they call a service line uh, or a clinical pathway that sort of draws a straight line between the, the patient enters the system here and the patient en exits the system there. And you try and draw a straight line between the two. The reality is that instead of having a straight line, you have a very convoluted line referring backwards and forwards. And the staff spend, in, in certainly many of the cases, situations I was involved in as a consultant clinician, staff can spend 80% of their time trying to unravel the, these convolutions and, and distortions in service provision. Uh, and, and, and the left with only 20% of their time actually dealing with the patient, which means that the lowest possible grade of staff, the cheapest grade of staff, get to do the vast majority of the work. The, the unqualified care assistant, the freshly qualified house officer, and so on and so forth. So you, you land up with this politicization of turf wars and silos where it's not their problem, it's someone else's problem. And the quicker they can refer you on to someone else and discharge the problem to somewhere else is how the system works. And as a patient going in, you find yourself confronted with this monolithic organizational opaque functionality that just doesn't explain itself, doesn't, uh, doesn't become apparent in terms of what's happening. Now, when you're a nurse and you come in as a patient, or when you've been working as a consultant overseas and you come back to England as a foreigner and you see what's happening through foreigners' eyes, you are awakened to this extraordinary silo thinking and this extraordinary amount of uh, almost sort of confrontational combat between different organisations. And certainly my own experience was such that you fought tooth and nail for resources and you, you didn't give thought or, or passage to any other considerations. You were forced into this silo of, of thinking where you defended your own patch against all oncomers. And so you land up with medical staff fighting their little turf wars. You land up with nurses fighting for more resources. And of course, the patient at the bottom of the pile, well, conveniently gets forgotten. Yeah. And if we put the size of the beast um, to the public, and you correct me if I've got this wrong, but I think the NHS total budget is somewhere over 120 billion a year. And I believe yeah. they employ over 55,000. That's the figure that comes into my head. 55,000? I think you'll find it's nearer one and a half million. Okay. Uh, well, uh, give us more on that. Where are those people? Oh, I suppose those are across all the, not just hospital sector, those across the whole of the care sector as well. Well, I mean, the, the, the home care sector, ho uh, care in your own home, is entirely different and is run separately by local authorities. Um, 
and there's about 1.7 million people working in home care. In the NHS, we have a situation where we have, uh, last time I looked, it was about 1.4 million people working in the NHS. Now, that's not just hospital doctors, hospital nurses, it's community staff, it's uh, outreach staff, district midwives, all that sort of uh, entourage of people. Um, but one of the most uh, disturbing elements, I think, that has come over the last decade or so is that NHS England was invented as a sort of parent body to control and govern uh, the functionality of the NHS, to smooth it out, to make it more lean, to make it more responsive. And here we are 10 or 11 years later, and we find that NHS England, far from being that entrepreneurial innovative developmental organization is actually a staggering bureaucracy of 14,000 people working in NHS England headquarters and its regional offices. So these 1.4 million people are dispersed across the entire spectrum of the NHS. And the bureaucracy, uh, like all empires, goes on breeding at will. Um, and it's now very interesting to hear that there are rumours, ugly rumours within Whitehall, that they may have to take NHS England and the NHS itself back under direct control of the Secretary of State and to, uh, uh, to appoint that person as the, the top manager, uh, the, the, the ultimate responsibility for the NHS, which would be quite revolutionary, really. Um, the, the bureaucracy has become... Uh, a self-serving beast that just goes on multiplying at nauseam. And do you think that this bureaucracy has developed of its own accord, or is this something that has resulted from planned and imposed policy? Interesting point. Um, what has happened on many, many occasions is that a political initiative or a change in the law is implemented and the response from the NHS has been, well, to implement that we need X number of additional staff. So with every legislative manoeuvre, every ministerial diktat, stroke of a minister's pen, the bureaucracy that that then creates starts to burst into action, starts to breed itself. And you find that whole departments uh, start to evolve uh, and develop and, and in, increase in, in their man, manpower, headcount. And you find that whereas something in, say, one country was was operating quite effectively, quite smoothly. Um, you come back to the NHS, come back to England, to the NHS, and you find that it's being gold-plated, that the bureaucrats have added additional features to that ministerial diktat or that legislative measure, and you land up with five gold stars bolted onto the side of this, what the minister thinks was a very simple, very straightforward exercise in smoothing out the care process, the, the hospital management process. And it just goes on replicating itself. Um, and and it, it's quite frightening to, to, to see it in action. 
Okay, thank you for that. While, while you were talking, the other the other point that came into my mind was the issue of privatisation because we've over the years we've come into contact with a number of medical professionals. In, indeed, um, several years ago we we set up a, an NHS conference where we had a number of very good speakers talking about their experience of what was happening in the NHS, and they varied from um, clinical uh, specialists, doctors essentially, uh, were talking about what was happening inside the NHS in relation to care. We also had one lady who had um, had got considerable experience inside the financial systems of the NHS, um, and she talked about everything from fraud and corruption. But the theme that I'm going to say most of the speakers came out with is um, damage being done by privatisation, that although the government was constantly selling the NHS as a national treasure, which was safe, um, behind the scenes what was happening were was that um, elements of the NHS were being sold off bit by bit, step by step. And this, I can remember some of these speakers were saying that they believed was a key problem because it wasn't as if the bureaucracy was allowed to get on with itself. Uh, it had also got nibbling away at it, a sort of cancerous privatisation. Do you, do you recognise any of that sort of description or do you think those people didn't, didn't quite see it correctly? Um, firstly, I absolutely do see that situation. And secondly, I think they got it wholesale wrong. I think, firstly... The NHS has not been privatised. What has happened in several instances, and I've been involved intimately with several uh, contracts, is that certain services have been contracted out, but that contract is exactly the same contract as an NHS provider would have. Now, in competitive tendering, and particularly in the days of primary care trusts, uh, maybe 10, 10, 12 years ago, and and there was a, a Gordon Brown came up with the idea of a a, a walk-in clinic, a Darcy clinic. And I was responsible for, with five primary care trusts across the country for implementing that scheme. And those contract tenders went out to uh, anybody who was interested in tendering. So there were NHS hospitals, NHS trusts who were tendering, and there were private health provider organisations that tendered. And the most economically advantageous tenders were always from the private sector, always, 100%. They beat, and, and this is important fact, it's not about the cheapest bid, it's about the most economically advantageous tender. And where people are very concerned about the, privatise, the, the purported privatisation of the NHS, I think they are mistaken. The NHS, you, you, I mean, you have to go back to founding principles. You cannot create an entrepreneurial, innovative, creative organisation from a 36-layered bureaucracy that is stodgy, unmoving, entrenched and incapable of moving outside of its own parameters of thinking, out of its own little box of thinking. So when you come across tenders for creative new services 
And that's worked in psychiatry as well as acute services, as well as primary care, frontline services. What you're looking for is innovative, creative solutions to an established, recognised problem. Now, what I would suggest is that we don't need to privatise the NHS. What we do need to do is denationalise it. And that's a very subtle difference because privatising it is selling it off to the highest bidder. Denationalising it is taking it out of the hands of the politicians and the bureaucrats and letting local organisations flourish and develop and respond to local priorities in a way that they otherwise can't do because of national targets and medical protocols and whatever else. So if you remove that, that blockage, that massive blockage, and unchain, and you unchain the energy that is, that is inherent within the professional people that work within the NHS. And we've seen that happen where doctors who complain about the NHS being privatised toddle off down the road in their Jaguars and their Bentleys and work in the, the private hospital five miles down the road and get enormous salaries for that privilege and are stakeholders, they're shareholders in those private hospitals. Even geriatricians and psychiatrists do the same. So it, it, it's very much a false narrative. And I think that unless we can face up to the fact that the NHS, as it stands today, as it functions today, it can't carry on like this. We cannot go on like this. We have to create something better and different. And I think the, the primary answer to that like, falls into two categories. One, we need quality assurance driven by contracts. And secondly, we need to denationalise and create uh, out of what are currently NHS trusts, we need to create private enterprise that is owned by the public, governed by public authorities, but has the entrepreneurial capacity and permission to function like a private company in that locality. Uh, and Duncan, until we get to that level, we're sunk. Yes. Duncan, ab absolutely fascinating to uh, hear you say that. And um, as, as you were talking through nationalisation, um, what came two things came into my mind one was it's a shame that david scott is not sat with me because this is one of the areas that he is he's talked about um numerous to me uh, not on record but he's spoken to me about um how he sees healthcare provision and he's talked about the fact that going back in time you would have uh, the doctors serving their local community and people might be paying the doctors in those days direct. You go and see the doctor and the doctor does something and he's paid direct by the patient. But that was also a time when, if necessary, the doctor would travel to the home of the patient to see them. So there was quite a simple um, element of, of commercial transaction together with the provision of the healthcare at the doctor level. But of course, the other thing was that that the centre probably of healthcare would be based on um, the local hospital. And that might have a couple of elements to it because we could have the local hospital, which could be relatively big. And in bigger cities, it would be supported by uh, even more local cottage style hospitals 
which um, I can just about remember in my own lifetime would have provided either simple um, uh, medical treatment. Somebody got a bad cut or they broken a leg, they could go to the local cottage hospital for that. But the other thing that the local cottage hospital might do is, is provide uh, care for a very elderly patient who was perhaps recovering after an operation in the slightly bigger hospital. What I'm really describing is that the, the health care was centred around these hospital units, which were automatically at a local level. Is it the case that we should be thinking about perhaps going back to this uh, this idea instead of a vast hospital, our, our one in Derriford, uh, sorry, our one in Plymouth, Derriford Hospital, I think on a full capacity day has about six and a half thousand people in there, patients and staff, that we should be sort of decentralising and heading back towards this local hospital provision. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And, and it would be good to have a conversation with your, your colleague about that. And I think there are, again, a couple of problems associated with this, uh, with the current format, the current disposition of the NHS. I think your colleague and, your, and yourself have come across one of the great answers to one of the great problems of step-down facilities. Now, we have hospitals uh, full of people who are medically fit, that the medical system can't make any further contribution to. They're medically fit for discharge, but, but home care, social care can't get them out. So we have bed blocking, which is a very unpopular phrase, but nevertheless, it describes exactly what is happening. And, and if we had step-down facilities that a hospital could say, okay, someone is medically fit, but not socially fit for discharge, they can go to a step-down facility. In, in, in days of yore, that would have been the community hospital. And one of the most unfortunate jobs that I ever had was to decommission a community hospital. Um, and, and everybody locally was up in arms because it was seen as an absolutely pristine facility supported by a league of friends, money poured in, but nevertheless, the local health authority were determined to bulldoze it and did. So if we had step-down facilities where patients could move out of acute hospital settings into a caring environment that would be led by not just nurses, but occupational therapists, physiotherapists, so that the therapeutic element was still there, was very much present, very much there on demand, but you'd moved out of the medical sphere of influence into the therapeutic sphere of influence. That, I think, would be an absolutely essential step forward for the NHS to embark on. The second element to this is the role of the general practitioner. The general practitioner is divorced from the wider NHS. They live in little silos, in little private businesses dotted all over the place. Now, if you, and, and, you know, my experience of working with NHS GPs is that after about year seven in post, they're bored out of their tree. So if we could get GPs integrated into the wider clinical sphere, so you could have a GP who was an orthopaedic specialist, recognised as part of the hospital orthopaedic team, a gastroenterology specialist, part of the gastroenterology team in the general hospital. You could start integrating properly the hospital and primary care 
into a seamless service where specialists and expertise move between the two. At the moment, you're stuck in a silo. You can't get out of it. And it, 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 it wrecks the, the clinical pathway. It wrecks the service line management. It costs us a fortune in terms of NHS budgets. And, and it delays patient care. So I think your colleague and yourself in that conversation have hit the proverbial nail on the head. Okay, thank you for that. So I lost over the number of people employed. I got that one badly wrong, but I've, um, <laughs> <laughs> I've clawed some points back on this one. Um, what did I want to say on that? Yes, okay, well, if this, is, if this has got the seeds of a good idea about it, have you ever seen this sort of thing proposed to the people at high level who are supposedly worrying about the demise of the of the NHS and what to do to save the beast? Uh, yes, I have made that suggestion. And when I was on the um, Care Act implementation task and finish group, a glorified title, if ever I heard, um, I and two or three others were very keen to promote the the idea that you should have step-down facilities and that it would be entirely legitimate for the NHS to open nursing homes, for want of a better title, so that people could move out uh, in, into a care environment. Um, and I think the, the, the bigger picture in terms of trying to get that idea across comes up against, immediately comes up against the NHS hospital trust turf territory and hospitals get their money in, in different ways from various methods but the, the the problem for them would be how would they get the money to pay for those step-down facilities for those community hospitals would it be a separate organization should it be a separate organization uh, or should they uh, should the main major hospital hang on to it, control it, uh, and, and run it. And uh, there, there's a case to be made for either. But in terms of taking that idea up to the Department of Health, uh, and as I say, particularly when I was working on a, an implementation task force up there, they wouldn't hear of it. It was absolutely uh, unheard of. They, they would not entertain the idea. That, that, that the major thrust is consolidation. You get all the major... Uh, services into one big hospital. And you look at G St. James's in Leeds, massive, monumentally huge hospital. And, and one of the arguments that was very much currency at the time was that small hospitals can't provide the level of expertise to keep consultant medical staff and, senior, and nurses, clinical nurses, up to speed with the latest developments. You need a big university teaching hospital to do that. So small hospitals of about 350 beds or less, uh, their future is very much um, under threat. So you have this huge industry around big hospitals and we, we haven't learned the lessons that France and Germany and other countries have, where you have smaller community facilities that can accommodate a lot of the subacute step-down patients. And that is a, a, a serious um, error in planning, a serious mistake in thinking about how to organise and corral 
the, the resources and the energy you've got in the health system. Right, that, that's extremely interesting because um, uh, I'm still coming to terms with the, the fact that you took away the privatisation bit, which I'm very happy to accept. But um, this, in my own mind, was one one of the uh, one of the key problems. Now, and now you've you've got me thinking that in the first instance we've got the power of of the bureaucratic monster which is going to defend itself at every opportunity because people yes. have got jobs and they're very highly paid i i was always very interesting when i started to realize that we we'd suddenly gone to degree chief executives a, a management degree chief executives of hospitals so these I don't know how many years ago this started, but but it was the professional training of um, of hospital CEOs, and those individuals were then work walking into extremely highly paid jobs. I mean, I think some of the bigger teaching hospital chief executives are on about two hundred and sixty thousand pounds, or or were a few years ago. And that always says to me that people who are in a job on that level of payment are not going to give up their job easily. And they're also going to defend their patch against anything which they think is a threat, um, you know, to, to their livelihood. So I, I can see through money itself how people can, can quickly be controlled. But the other thing these chief executives demonstrated was a was a break between people going into the medical system out of a desire to help people, to look after them, to care for the sick and injured. And you had these professionals who were coming in from a business management and a fiscal management point of view. And I always felt that was the start of something not very good in the NHS, that you, you no longer had a hospital where probably the key decisions on all matters were made by consultants. Yes, um, it, it was and remains a significant problem. And I, there were two occasions where I, I ran into that uh, head, head first, as, as it were, um, on one occasion in a hospital in the uh, very southern end of the, the Midlands, they had employed a 29-year-old directorate manager, directorate general manager, who was not a clinician. He had come out of university with a uh, BA or something and had gone straight in to do his MBA. And at the age of 29, got an executive director's role uh, of a large medical unit in a district general hospital. And it took about four months for the senior hierarchy to realize that they had a catastrophe on their hands. And on a second occasion, I met a 35-year-old um, who had come from car manufacturing, uh, done his MBA, and had decided the health service was rich pickings and moved in and lasted um, 15 months. And it then took the clinicians, uh, nurses, two years to sort the mess out. Now, that's not to say that people coming in from outside are bad. I've got an MBA myself um, because I recognised early on in the early 90s that you were going to get nowhere unless you had a DMS and an MBA. But it soon became apparent that people who 
have no hospital experience, no clinical background, take an inordinate amount of time to assimilate themselves into the hospital culture. It is vastly different. And there was that apocryphal case of the brigadier who took over Nottingham General Hospitals and assumed that the, the medical consultants would be his officer's mess and that they would have powwows in the officer's mess until the clinical consultants ganged up on him and threw him out. And he, he didn't last very long at all. That brigadier was severely traumatised by that uh, situation. So I think we need to get a real sense of balance about, uh, about how we're led and about how NHS trusts are led. Un undoubtedly, you need business acumen, but I think it's probably more important to know your product. I mean, would you employ a medical doctor to run the production line at Ford Cars or the nuclear submarine yard in Barrow and Furness? Well, probably not. So you need to get a sense of balance around it and you need to work hard on getting those people up to speed in terms of the culture and the operationalization of healthcare. And there was a fast track um, course a few years ago where doctors, dentists, who decided they want to get into management could go on a fast track system and work their way around a hospital for a couple of years and then take over as assistant, assistant chief exec or something. And that didn't last very long either. Um, it, it, it's a very fine line you have to walk in terms of getting the right skills, the right business acumen and the right industry knowledge to take over and run a trust. It's, it's been done. It's been done well. But there have been some serious accidents en route. Okay, oh, yeah. so and as, for, as for earning a quarter of a million quid, I mean, how many nurses could you employ for a quarter of a million quid? You know I mean, just bonkers in it yeah um okay number of points coming to my to my mind is the the other one that i i was interested in was was when we started to see nurses uh put on degree courses and so originally a nurse would uh, go to a hospital to begin training and she would it would inevitably in those days be a she now of course it could be a man or a woman but they go on the, the ward and they start at the bottom uh, they would be changing beds they would be emptying bedpans they would be uh, doing all of the menial jobs and then they would slowly work their way up through responsibilities to whatever it is staff nurse um, nursing sister matron and I recognise that system because essentially that was the system in the military as well. But then we had the decision that nurses were going to go to university to learn how to nurse. And then we had the nurse with a degree but no experience coming on the ward, almost being shocked that they were going to be asked to do jobs which inexperienced nurses have been asked to do over a great many years for a reason. It, it took them from the bottom to moving up through. And I could identify with some of the criticism that came around this new system, because at one stage in the Navy, at least, they decided they were going to take more people in the officer corps from degree courses. And in one particular year, you had people who 
had come from university, but they had two stripes on their arms. They were uh, lieutenants. And in quite a short space of time, there were some problems occurred because these lieutenants had no experience whatsoever. But as far as uh, some of the uh, more junior sailors were concerned, if they had two stripes on their arm, they knew what they were doing. And there was, there, on two occasions, there were very nearly fatal accidents because the uh, inexperienced lieutenant had too much um, faith in their own ability and they made decisions which were completely crass. But I'm just emphasising a point here. Somebody made the decision that we wouldn't sort of have an apprenticeship system for nursing. And the same applies for doctors, really. Um, we would bring in these people who've been trained at university and they are unleashed on the wards without any experience. And what I've always wanted to know is who, who was the person, who were the people who made the decision for this sort of change in the organisation? Yes, um, it, it, there's a bit of a history here. Um, going back into the late 70s and 80s, um, the vocational calling that was nursing gave way to a very strong drive to academize, to turn it into an academic enterprise. So what had been a vocational hands-on, minds-on course over three years with quite a lot of science and a lot of disease and pharmacy and all the rest of it thrown in, yes, of course, but it was then under a, under a, a scheme called Project 2000 in the late 80s, uh, mid-90s, took, took nursing students out of hospitals and put them into universities, as you rightly said, and it became an academic pursuit. And the, the time that those academic students spent in the clinical environment, on wards, in departments, was very limited. And certainly the experience of senior managers like myself in by the mid-90s was that as a Project 2000 university graduate came out onto the wards as a fully qualified nurse, they had to be taken off those wards and put back into school because they had never given out a drug round of 34 patients. They had never given last offices to a deceased patient. They had never gone into theatres. They had never gone into mortuaries, let alone post-mortems. And we landed up taking those nurses off the wards, putting them back into school to teach them how to be nurses. And that was quite a cultural shock for them because they had been taught throughout that period, that university period, that they would be the cream of the cream. They were the qualified, they were academic, the achievers, and so on and so forth. And when they actually got onto the wards, they suddenly found that actually not only were they the bottom of the pile, but actually they were the ignorant bottom of the pile. And there were unqualified care assistants teaching them how to give drugs to patients, yeah. how to perform last offices on a dead body, and so on and so forth. A terrible, a terrible shift in emphasis for them and quite a cultural shock for, for lots of them. Quite a few of them didn't survive and moved on quite quickly. Um, but you mentioned also about doctors. And one of the big issues that 
the medical profession has gone through over the last several years is that let's say 20 years ago you would you would go and see a consultant orthopedic gastroenterologist thoracic surgeon whatever that surgeon would be a consultant and to get to be a registrar the rank below a consultant they would have taken about 30,000 hours of academic and practical education to get them to be good enough clinically uh, to be a consultant or a general practitioner. Now, those, the doctors coming through the system now only get eight to 10,000 hours of education in that context. So we have fully qualified medical practitioners at consultant and GP level who have about a third of the amount of post-registration training that their counterparts 20 years ago would have had. So the expertise of medical staff, particularly general practitioners, is, has gone down. And for example, it has been calculated that general practitioners miss eight out of nine new cancers. So nine people turn up with a suspected cancer, eight of them will get missed. One of them will get diagnosed as probable cancer and referred on to oncology. So those other eight, well, they develop higher, higher level cancers, go to stage two, three, four and die. So we have that real problem within the health service about expertise and successor planning. Right, um, Duncan, sorry to come back in here. What my question then is that if if um, you've got a lot of experience in the NHS, I, I haven't. My experience of the NHS is from uh, family connections and friends who've been involved in the NHS. But I'll say that would that's on a spectrum from um, people involved in nursing to a couple of hospital consultants. But you and I are having this discussion, this conversation now, and we've identified that a particular change in emphasis from learning on the job to being trained in a university has not um, has not delivered a good result. We can see this. Again, who made the decision to bring it in? This is what I always want to know. Who were the people who said, we're going to change the structure. We don't want to do it as it's always been done. We're going to bring in this new thing. Who are they and how do they get away with introducing something which I think has been has been very detrimental on the NHS? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not one person or one group. It's a it's a cohort uh, of people who come together um, and, and let's just say a theoretical model, a, a discussion model would be a group of people at the uh, British Medical Association decide there's an issue that they think needs addressing. They go to the Department of Health uh, with a with a paper that describes the nature of the problem, and the Department of Health mull it over for several months. They form a working party to drill down on it. Um, recommendations and ideas are uh, percolate to the surface. Costings are applied to that. And if, if you say, well, okay, we can save two years on a, on a, uh, a medical, uh, post-registered medical course, um, and that's going to save X thousands of pounds, 
and we can get people up to speed in terms of being a senior clinical practitioner that much quicker, then it gets stamped, rubber stamped after the working party and the costings and all the rest of it. So it's not one person. It is a massive bureaucratic exercise where conflicting demands um, are, are put together uh, and the balance is made in terms of cost-benefit analysis, in terms of uh, environmental impact assessments. And, and it, ha it, it was decided that, particularly for nursing, that Project 2000, taking students off the wards, putting them into university, and creating an academic nurse was a far better cost benefit analysis uh, benefit to the NHS because you could then reduce the number of nurses because they were more technically competent, they were more uh, advanced practitioners. You need uh, slightly less nurses per ward, and you could fill the gap with unqualified care assistants. So there was that very def very defined approach in terms of costs and uh, what was thought to be improved services, improved care. But it didn't work out like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've been interested in a, an organisation called Common Purpose for many years. Common <laughs> Purpose is a, uh, calls itself a leadership charity. It trains future leaders. And... Um, Certainly, when I was really looking into its activities 10 years ago, I was fascinated by the fact that it had clearly latched onto the NHS in a very, very big way. And so the NHS was paying out some pretty substantial sums of money in order to get people put on this course, which created future leaders. But if I now follow through the NHS, I can actually see that the NHS Leadership Academy is itself virtually a wing of common purpose. So the common purpose agenda is now, now permeates the whole of the NHS. And I don't know whether you've come across a common purpose. If you have, I'd be very interesting, interested. But it seems to me that many of the... Um, poor, sometimes disastrous, sometimes very strange decisions that are being made within the NHS are actually coming from their own, what they call their leadership centre of excellence. And this, to me, now seems to have become a, a specialist area of the NHS, which is doing a lot of damage because it's completely lost touch with with the real aim of the nhs to uh, help make people sick people better and to care for people it's gone into its own management guru speak are, are you familiar with common purpose at all or the nhs leadership academy and what it does yes indeed um and i, and I have to openly admit here that my own view of common purpose is such that were I to be magically appointed as prime minister tomorrow morning, the first thing I would do is that anybody, anywhere, in any organisation that had been indoctrinated by common purpose would be made redundant on the spot. Um, let's make no bones about it. Common purpose is nothing more than an ideological fifth column because the, the whole ideological position 
of common purpose is in the title. It is common purpose. And it's infiltrated the police and various other uh, agencies and organisations. So I think in terms of the setting up and running of an NHS leadership programme that reflects those co that common purpose agenda, it's hardly surprising that what you get is clones. You don't get people coming out of that who are grounded in developing services. They come out ideologically indoctrinated and it is catastrophic in its implications. Now, yeah, there may be good people coming out, there may be not so good people coming out, but I, I, let me think now, 22, 23 years ago, the King's Fund ran a course called Top Managers Courses and Senior Managers Courses, and they were very focused on how to marshal your resources, how to direct and create fellowship, how to in create leadership, which common purpose doesn't. It's about ideology. And I think that the consequences of setting up a common purpose mirror image within the NHS, creating clones, will only reinforce the silo thinking, will only reinforce the stodgy bureaucracy and will prevent the NHS from ever being anything other than what it is today. And the idea that we have seeded the management classes with change agents is a complete myth. I'm sorry, but I'm, you've, got me on a, you've got me on a soapbox with this one. Well, uh, Duncan, I, I've got to say I'm, I'm utterly delighted because uh, you and I have not spoken to each other before today. Um, and so I threw that at you. I had no idea what you were going to say, uh, but I was utterly delighted to hear somebody else speak with sort of vehemence about what this organisation is about and what it does. While you were talking, I um, just went on to, to my laptop here because uh, I couldn't remember the date. And actually, where are we? It's the 24th of May, 2013. Um, the UK column posted a really excellent article about the penetration of common purpose into the NHS. And it was called the NHS Common Purpose Towards a Million Change Agents. And it was written by a, a man called Martin Edwards, who I've known for many years. And he's, he's done quite a lot of He's done a lot of research on his own, but in the early days helped me research common purpose. But in his particularly detailed article, um, he's got a lot of quotes which have come from the common purpose elements inside the NHS themselves. And uh, a million change agents was a suggestion by one lady that this is what the NHS needed in order to rectify all of its problems, a million change agents. When I looked at it with complete horror, because of course, well, what I see, have seen over the years is that wherever common purpose initiated its transformational change, the organization began to fall apart from the inside. 
don't know how you'd react to that. Yeah, I, I, I can see where you're coming from on that. I can see where your, your colleague who authored that piece is coming from. I think the sort of, I mean, for a start, the idea that you've got a million change agents is just, well, it's a pipe dream, isn't it? I mean, it's Disney-esque fantasy land. Um, and, and the further it permeates down through the grade, through the rank structure within the NHS, you land up with this Stepford Wives sort of situation where you, you have people who are in, completely indoctrinated and completely beholden to this quasi-Marxist approach. You know, and, and you start to wonder just what is happening to, to because the mentality of this approach, you know, if, if, if the, the, the inspiration behind common purpose wasn't to upend Western society and the, the organs of Western society, why, do they, why are they doing it? Why, why on earth go down this road? And, and the more I see of common purpose, the more I appreciate that, you know, situation, uh, organizations sort of like the uh, uh, World Economic Forum and the uh, Paul Alensis uh, organization in the United States that Hillary Clinton and Obama were both aficionados and followers of, there's this sort of slow burn indoctrinating quasi-Marxist sort of approach. And if you project that, that sort of cultural methodology forward over the next sort of five or 10 years, you can see that organizations are not going to survive simply because they're, the boundaries, the processes, the structures are all going to be undermined. And, and you really have got me on an ideological soapbox now, I'm afraid, but I, it, it's, it reeks of desperation that an organization as large and as purposeful as the NHS should be can be subverted by an ideological drive that has got absolutely nothing to do with healthcare. It's got nothing to do with healthcare at all. It is nothing more than an ideological institution. Um, and and uh, it, it bodes very unwell. Um, this, yeah. this, this, this is absolutely fascinating to hear you say this. Let's throw in the next bits that when we investigated Common Purpose, what, uh, what we saw it doing was it's almost like a virus. Um, it, it gains a foothold in an organisation and then grows inside it. And Common Purpose from the outset was always very interested in uh, people who were controlling budgets in organisations, particularly if they had control over a training budget, because if Common Purpose could get in and do a little course, and then they've recruited somebody in that organisation, if they could recruit somebody who had control over the training budget, they could get several steps up the ladder to get a bigger event going inside the organisation. And they did this inside the police, they did it inside the NHS, inside education. They were everywhere in the public sector. 
But the other bit that we became aware of is that it wasn't as if they were simply putting people in a room and talking to them. What qualified people explained to us, and I'm going to say one of the gentlemen who, who taught me most in the early days, um, had, uh, was well trained in psychology as a result of his work in um, uh, the NHS and social services. And he said to me very quietly one day, well, but you realize, of course, Brian, they're using NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And I had no idea what that was. And so he started to explain to me it was the use of applied psychology in order to change the way people change their views and their values. And he said it's a very powerful tool because you can use it on a group of people and they will have no idea what you're doing with them. And, and this was the point at which we started to realize that the common purpose courses themselves were taking control of people by using applied psychology. And, and this made common purpose an extremely dangerous organization, I felt, because it, it buried its way into an organization by largely by I'm going to say deceit and stealth. It was certainly deceitful in what it was going to do. But it, it was also using applied psychology in order to capture its own audience and future leaders inside that organization. And for the NHS, we not only saw the common purpose elements taking control of the NHS, now via the NHS leadership structure, we, we had also unleashed the power of NLP inside hospitals. And it, before I hand back to you, if I just add to this, that um, of course, once we discovered that the cabinet office in 2010 was boasting that it was able to use applied psychology to change the public's mind, this was all the work of the Behavioural Insights team, uh, which was run alongside the Cabinet Office. Um, but we now started to see policy uh, and future policy of organisations being framed on the basis that they were going to use applied psychology to drive the government's agenda. And this, to me, was an immensely dangerous com combination particularly where you put it alongside healthcare. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, and th there are several strands to this. I mean, it, if, perhaps first and foremost, because the NHS is such a monolithic enterprise and because it has such a high regard within the public um, appreciation, and it, it has almost become a religion. Therefore, the amount of influence over policymakers, both at local uh, city, county level, as well as national government, the capacity to influence policy because of what it is, is immense. And that is dangerous in itself. Now, you would expect a large organisation, the biggest employer after the KGB, I think someone once told me, um, you would expect it to want to have some influence at, at policy level. But when that becomes an ideological, unified ideological proposition rather than local interest, 
then you are automatically and immediately in a minefield. The second element is that the ideology behind it is so seductive that people who are politically less versed in the machinations of government and uh, decision-making processes are easily seduced by this very luxurious, smooth-talking approach to, you know, how we are all relate to each other, how we engage with each other, how we feel about each other. So that you get, you know, what that saying, you know, if you, if you get them young enough, you can keep them forever. And I think, you know, people who are at the beginning of their careers who are indoctrinated in this stuff come out the other end utterly convinced, utterly convinced that this is the way forward. It's the only way forward. There are no alternatives. And, and that is even more dangerous uh, because it, it brooks no opposition or challenge or competitive ideas or improving ideas. And, and it, it entrenches this inbuilt silo thinking. It is grotesquely dangerous. And then I think the other item is that NLP is one of the most abhorrent faux sciences imaginable. I mean, it is absolute Disney-esque witchcraft. It, it is, you know, we, we hear in terms, you know, when COVID lockdown and all that, and Susan Mitchie, the well-known communist, was in charge of the nudge or involved in the nudge units in terms of nudge psychology, nudging the the population into believing that lockdowns and masks were the, 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 the be-all and the end-all. It would save humanity from itself sort of thing. And you realise that people like Susan Mitchie are involved with common purpose and people of her ilk are involved with common purpose. They use language, they use NLP to change the meaning of words. They change the impact of words so that your vocabulary means something different. Once you've changed the language, once you've changed the meaning of the words that are being used, then you start to change how people think, you start to change how people appreciate, and you remove from them the capacity for independent thought. NLP is a scandalous, absolutely scandalous faux science. And, you know, it, it, it's witchcraft for the 21st century. And... Uh, it, it, you know, I mean, I'm not for censorship by any stretch of the imagination, quite the opposite. But really, you know, we have to look as a society as what we allow to be done unto us. And if we allow NLP, common purpose, to do unto us what it is doing, then we're just heading towards Stepford Wives. I'm sorry, but it's just nightmare scenario. Duncan, I'm doubly fascinated now because um, when I threw common purpose at you, I thought with your experience, there's a good chance that you might have at least come across it and therefore have something to say about it. But clearly, you've not only come across it, you've really thought about what it is and you, you're declaring you feel pretty uncomfortable with what it is. Can I, can I ask, when, when did you first become aware of Common Purpose? And was that in an NHS setting or was it somewhere else? No, no, it, it wasn't in an NHS setting. I, 
for a period of three years was uh, National Director of Clinical Practice and Clinical Supervision for Relate, which used to be the Marriage Guidance Council, um, but uh, is now called Relate and deals with all manner of relationship issues, not just divorce, uh, which it started out with. And my, my job, I, I, I got regional managers all over the place. Um, and there are psychotherapists and sex therapists and all manner of uh, psychological practitioners. And some of the programs, some of the schools of psychological thinking that our practitioners, I mean, we, we got 2,200 practitioners across the entire country and partner organizations in Germany, Scotland, Malta, Gibraltar, whatever, wherever. And some of the, the schools of psychological thought that were being practiced struck me uh, having, uh, as a psychiatric nurse with a, a DMS and an MBA as being not quite right. And I, I started to drill down seriously into things like uh, Kelly's Personal Construct Psychology, Milan School of Family Therapy, NLP, and there's a few other bizarre schools of, of psychological thought and practice. And it soon, I soon realized that the psychological apparatus that was being used to change people's thinking about relationships, change people's thinking about not just relationships, man and wife, but relationships between and within families, within extended families, in terms of communities, neighbours, streets, all that sort of thing, were being adversely impacted by these weird, perverse schools of psychological practice and thinking epitomized by NLP. So we're going back to turn of the century, you know, 2000. And since then, I've, I've one of my many hobbies is, is to research into such things as this, uh, which took me into, um, you know, World Economic Forum and all that sort of stuff as well. So, you know, you get labeled as a bit of a conspiracy theorist at times, but when you sit down and study NLP, and you look at the motivation behind people that are trying to impart the principles of NLP to others, you have a very defined command and control psychology going on. And it's the same with Common Purpose. It is a command and control psychology program. It is nothing else other than we will instill in you the psychological framework where we can control your appreciation, uh, analysis, construction of social environments, social events, inter interpersonal relationships, relationships with patients and so on and so forth, in a way that we can then control uh, by importing into your awareness priorities that you otherwise wouldn't have come across. And those priorities are ill-disguised Marxist fifth columnist stuff. Uh, well, I, I, I always challenge the, uh, you know, the theory bit because a conspiracy is, is a recognised event state activity. The, the adding of the word theory was the attempt to uh, take people's eye off the fact that they need to understand conspiracies are real. But 
What a, what a fascinating discussion because I I never expected that this afternoon I uh, together with your good self we'd end up back on the subject of common purpose and what it's doing. You have taken it far enough to say that it's it's a fifth column organization, and I completely agree. Is it unrealistic of me to think that if uh, a fifth column organization with a particular political agenda, you've likened it to Marxism, we could debate that a bit, but I understand where you're coming from. If that organization has been unleashed within the NHS, is it any wonder that the NHS is in a complete state of chaos and breakdown at the moment under NHS leadership, as it calls itself? Is it any wonder? No, I, I, I don't think it's any wonder to anybody who has the uh, nous to drill down and, and see what's happening. And I think that if you take into consideration the concept of the long march through the institutions, we have an absolutely pristine example of a long march through the institution. And the, 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 the long march is ongoing, it's perpetual, it's non-stop, and uh, it, it, it brings about a revolutionary uh, frame of reference uh, because of the slow burn approach. And one of the key elements um, in this approach to infiltrating organizations, and I, I, I use the word infiltration with great hesitancy, but one of the, the key components of that ideological move into institutions is that you break down the, the traditions, the heritage, uh, the customs, the practice, and the volition towards what the purpose of the organization is. And the purpose of the NHS is that you have a volitional commitment to helping ill people, sick people, curing people, getting them better. And if you break down those profound psychological components as to why you and the organization exist, you absolutely create confusion and chaos. That is a design intention. It's not an accident. It's not an unfortunate corollary of this important program. It is a design intention. It's designed to break down those pillars of accountability, responsibility, and authority that allow the organization to function as a cohesive, coherent, lined up whole. It's purposeful, common purpose. Purpose, yeah. And I think that until you recognize that and until you take a deliberate intentional course of action to reestablish the moral values the morality and the ethics of a caregiving organization you will land up with a self-satisfying self-perpetuating bureaucratic entity who sees itself as a change agent for society as a whole. 
through influencing policymakers, influencing local decisions, and influencing how people think. That is nudge politics. That is nudge psychology. That is what they was deployed during COVID and is being deployed in large-scale institutions. And we've seen the wokefulness of the police. And we've seen a couple of ch uh, chief uh, constables, chief constables, saying that we must get back to solving crimes rather than policing the internet and Facebook and Twitter and all that crap. Because they have woken up to the fact that their police force has been subjugated to this, mm. this common ideology. That is happening in the health service. It's also happening in the civil service and other organisations. So I think we have a monstrous ideological challenge ahead of us. And I think we there's not enough people that understand this. Thank you very much for being so forthright on this. And, uh, and you're clearly showing that you've got a lot of knowledge and you considered a lot of aspects around this. I, I'm going to suggest that because um, I've lost a little bit of track of the time, but I think we're on about an hour and a quarter or an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, uh, 47. Uh, okay, <laughs> we, we had a little bit of a break, a technical break there, so a little bit less. So I think yeah, we yeah, should yeah. stop here. Uh, but I'm going to say to the audience that um, in the little bit of text you gave me uh, uh, towards, yes, he was at the end, you were talking about current grief. Uh, so you were yeah. talking about social care, the grief to end all griefs, waiting lists, maternity services, mental health, um, uh, COVID and lockdown. And then you were talking about NHS care to sick people. The NHS is a sick people service. Uh, if you would do me the honour, it would be great to have a part two with you. And I would propose that we, we, we start uh, looking at the, the use of this psychology at the beginning of COVID. Um, well, that brings us into the uh, spy B arena and SAGE teams of the government. Uh, but we can have a look at this psychological element and then we can work the other way. We can follow through to see what happened to um, care provision in the NHS following the use of the COVID um, um, pandemic psychology. And I think this would lead us back to your uh, statement on what the current griefs are, because of course, so many of the problems today have been caused by the decimation of the NHS under lockdown rules. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, fine. Look forward to that. OK, well, Duncan, we'll end there. Thank you very much for uh, joining me today. And also thank you very much for getting in contact with the UK column in the first place. It just shows what happens when somebody takes the initiative. So I'm, I'm going to say a big thank you to that. And um, we will be in touch and uh, hopefully we can fix up a date fairly soon for a part two. But thank you. Pleasure.